This is Outspoken, the podcast of the Lawrence B. DeGroff Center for Oral and Public History at California State University, Fullerton. I'm your host, Benjamin Cothra. Here at Outspoken, we discuss projects from students, faculty, and the local community that incorporate public history. And because we believe there's no substitute for people telling their stories, Natalie Navarre, the center's archivist, will play some interview clips later on in the episode in our Out of the Archives segment. Today on Outspoken, we'll hear from three Cal State Fullerton historians about a new history exhibition opening at the Pollock Library here on campus. We have a group of Cal State Fullerton historians who are putting together an interesting exhibition, and they're going to tell us all about it. We're going to start with Margie Brown Cornell, my colleague in the history department, and Margie is going to introduce her guests, her colleagues working on this project. Margie, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me again. It's great to be here, especially with uh, two graduate students in the history department. We have Mark Garcia and Jael Muller. I'll allow them to introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Mark Garcia. I'm a student researcher on this um, <clears throat> on the exhibit and uh, also doing the oral history presentation uh, performance. My name is Jael Mueller, and I am the curator for the exhibit. Great. Great to have all of you here. And I know that this is a, a stressful time. I've done exhibitions for a long time. In a former life, I was a public historian, and we worked on exhibitions a lot. And I know how it is the last week or two before a show opens. So how are you all feeling? How are your, how's the stress level? It's high. <laughs> <laughs> It's high, but it's very exciting. It's really exciting because this has been long in the works, and so it's great to see it come to fruition right. and have it up on the walls. Now, you two haven't been through the, the through this as many times. How's it feeling to you? Um, it's overwhelming, but it's very exciting to finally see the final product in April, late April. And we should mention that it will run from April 27th through June 21st, 2017, and the title of the exhibition is Voces de Liberación, Latinas and Politics in Southern California. Now, this is an interesting title. This has been a long-standing interest of, of yours, uh, yes. Yael, and, and of Margie Brown Cornell. So how did this all begin, and how did we get to this point with a, a new exhibition? So when I started the, um, the master's master's project here at Cal State Fullerton, I really wanted to do an, an exhibition. I was in a previous class of yours, New Birth of Freedom. and uh, the story comes out. <laughs> <laughs> New Birth of Freedom. And uh, from that moment, I realized that I wanted to do something similar. So when I got into the master's pr program, I, um, I knew two things. I wanted to do the public history route and I also wanted to do something with Latin American history. So I was in a class with Dr. Fusekis. I got the pleasure of conducting some oral histories um, regarding Latinas in grassroots movements. And my first interview was Angelica Salas. And she is uh, featured in the exhibit. And then from there, I had let Dr. Margie Brown um, <laughs> know about my interest and we came together, and she really developed the whole, the whole scope of things and how we were going to proceed in this project. This is pretty ambitious. You're telling yes. several stories. Uh, how many actual women are you featuring in this exhibition? 
there, there are nine women. Mm -hmm. There are nine women uh, who will be featured, and um, nine remarkable women. And Jael, in trying to organize their stories, uh, developed three different categories to understand these women's activism and their political involvement. Uh, so three women, their stories focus on grassroots community-based organizing. Um, the second group is, is focused on issues of social justice. For instance, Angelica Salas that Jael mentioned um, is a director of an immigration rights organization. Um, and uh, legal issues, right? legal injustices. And then the last group, um, they're all involved with um, political access, increasing political access uh, for women um, and Latinas. So if a visitor comes to this exhibition, what will they experience? By the way, I should mention it's at the Salts Pollock Atrium Gallery at the Pollock Library. It'll start April 27th. What, what are they going to experience when they come to this exhibition? I actually um, got involved in this project uh, earlier uh, with this class I'm taking with Dr. Brown Cornell. And um, one thing I was asked to do is digitize some of the artifacts. So uh, you'll see some of the artifacts, uh, photographs uh, that uh, I was able to help digitize um, that are on loan from the narrators uh, that will go in line with some of the uh, themes in the, um, in the exhibition and, and in line with some of their oral histories. Um, and at the same time, um, I also was able to reach out to some of the uh, photographs that we needed with um, other entities, other photographers of that time. So it was a, a good experience to uh, reach out to some of the um, um, different photo photographers during that period and be able to match it with some of these oral histories in this project. Fantastic. But we're also going to hear some voices, correct? Yes, we're actually going to be featuring uh, the actual oral histories, oral history clips of the narrators in certain moments. So while you're walking through the exhibit, you could stop at um, oral history number one and be able to actually hear with her own voice um, Antonia Hernandez talking about the civil rights movement of her time that she experienced. When you were conducting the interviews, what, what's a story or two that, that really got you excited and got you thinking, wow, this could turn into something really, really big? Um, I think, like I said, uh, Angelica was one of my first oral histories that I conducted. And at the moment that we were conducting the interview, um, Barack Obama was going through the executive orders. So from the time that I started in interviewing her with the first interview, till our last interview, all his executive order for the immigration, um, his immigration proposals and everything came through. So I was, it really got me excited to be there at the moment and be able to get her personal, her personal stories and also her, her experience through that moment. And just with every narrator, they all have so many things in common and so many, they've contributed in so many ways. And one of the parts that I thought that was most um, touching is the fact that they're not doing this for themselves. They're doing this for a community. And it's not about them. It's about everybody. So that was something that I really wanted the exhibit to portray and to for you to be able to walk in there and be able to know that this is just one story of many. What are some of the activities these women have been involved in? I'm sure there's some very dramatic uh, stories about their commitment 
I think one story that really stood out to me, one woman, um, is Ada Briseño. Um, she was president of a labor organization here in Orange County that merged eventually with um, another uh, chapter in Los Angeles, but she organized resort industry workers. So she took on the big industries, the hotels here in Orange County, Disneyland, the beaches, and she really changed the way workers are represented in the, in the labor unions, as opposed to being top-heavy, all the leadership of the union deciding the shots and speaking on behalf of the workers. When she stepped in as president at the age of, what, 26? She led a bottom-up approach to teaching um, workers to defend their rights, to speak for their own rights, and to organize themselves. And I, you just don't hear about those stories here in Orange County. Um, and, and she was able to, to make some real differences. She was, her organization um, and her networks and partnerships in Anaheim in particular were so uh, fundamental to, to the change in city council the makeup of the city council. They passed Measure L and M um, through her organizing uh, to have the city of Anaheim be split up into six districts instead of being an at-large city council. And so the underrepresented um, groups in Anaheim now had people on the city council speaking on their behalf. And her story just kind of you know, really moved. You know, what's interesting about that, you could almost put that in several of your, your more than one of your categories. It's oh, yeah. about community, but it's and it's about justice, but it's also about the political process, right? right it's all of right, it. Right, right. And I think that's what you see in all these stories, that it, it was really hard to kind of say their categories. I think it's where they start mm -hmm. their, their um, advocacy and their organizing. Um, but it's true. I mean, in Antonia Hernandez has been critical to getting... Um, uh, she, her organization, MALDEF, at her leadership, was critical to redistricting uh, congressional seats so that there would be more representation in Congress. So, you know, she's everywhere. <laughs> her work is everywhere. So, yeah, it doesn't, they, they certainly go across, across the categories. Now, you have some design uh, experience now that you're doing some work with the uh, MA uh, certificate program? Yes. In, uh, in over in the art department. So tell us how you've brought some of those skills to bear on this this gallery. Um, it's very interesting because um, in the M in the public history program here in the history department, you kind of learn critically as a historian. You learn how to curate as a historian, and then in the art department, you learn about color. You learn about um, the space. Learning learning about your space. Um, we would do, we, we actually did models, so like scaled models, so you're able to really envision how this table would, it, does it fit on this wall, does this fit here, and really get a scale, and um, it was very uh, interesting learning all of that, and now when I walk into a space, I could actually look at it as a, as a designer also, and um, that has, that's actually a really a very um, important um, contribution for the exhibit. 
You know, those are two hats, though. Generally, in the museum world, we think of curators and we think of designers. The fact that you're involved in both of those and bringing them together is really exciting. Thank you. And it's probably why you're tired right now. Yeah, <laughs> exhausted. One of the things you did, I know, is you worked with some local artists, though, to help with the uh, design of the space and the decoration of the space and the interpretation of the space. What what was happening there? Um, Due to taking to being in the in the art department and in the certificate program, you really start seeing the importance of art, and um, something that we started learning about in in one of my classes was the term activism. So how art is used as a motivation of activism, um, and so it was really important for me to bring something artistic to the exhibit and to the space so that you can see that there's artists also that are being that are activating their communities um, whether with their murals which is which has been for many many years um, poems um, songs so um, we were able to get in contact with a collective in the Panorama City Pacoima area uh, an all-female collective called the Hood Sisters and they recommended um, one of their sisters, Christy Sandoval, to participate in the exhibit. And she is making a mural for us, um, taking the oral histories that are in the exhibit and making something empowering to show, to show the, the leadership and the, the movement through art. Fantastic. This is going to be a piece that... Yes, yeah. that will be, be in the exhibit. We'll be able yes. to see. Yeah. Um, next, uh, this podcast is on a, what day is this? Wednesday, or Monday, 10 days from now or so. Next Wednesday, the 26th, will be the opening reception and preview of the exhibition. And that'll start at 5.30. It's at the Quad here at uh, Cal State Fullerton. And Mark, if I'm not mistaken, you've got a big role to play that night. Yes, um, I'm going to be group of four of us uh, graduate students in our public history class with Dr. Brown Carnell, um, we are conducting the oral, oral history performance. And um, uh, we um, worked over spring break uh, to get some of this, to, <laughs> to choose the, the best, you know, lines. Hey, it's uh, graduate but, school. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, um, and we worked virtually and even uh, read some of the script together. And, um, but first we signed um, the, the nine narrators among the four of us and uh, we kind of honed in on our specific narrators and listening to it we've all come up um, with themes uh, with those oral histories and we come up with the moment and that's when that moment of activism um, challenges any type of challenges uh, they have through their ac activism uh, reflections reflecting back on their work uh, community we talked about that earlier before and feminism um, feminism uh, was actually one question all the narrators were asked what they thought about uh, feminism so we included that in the oral history and our approach for it was just um, taking our you know some of our public history um, techniques and background from us uh, just like in museum levels you make them short and concise and meaningful same thing with oral history um, um, uh, quotes here you know how can I get the most meaningful one and stay within those four um, I mean, the five different uh, uh, themes. Um, when we first um, dealt with it, we were like around 
uh, 18 minutes and we were shooting for 15 and then we worked uh, you know through uh, um, class time and virtually and we were able to get to around 14 minutes now so we're um, pretty much right on, on, on track for that oral history but um, the painstaking part in putting the oral history performances how to you know how to make it cohesive and have good transitions between the different um, um, themes so we look you know we, we took our um, all our quotes together and um, uh, cut them up in pieces and started piecing them all together uh, on this very table actually <laughs> and um, just to find a good transition and have that script flow uh, and get those themes. And it can be very moving. I know we've done this at several openings and one of the things the audience most appreciates is this performance. It really brings it to life. Mm -hmm. And they're the dream team. I mean this, this performance is really moving and um, having a chance to to hear this reading of the, from the oral histories of these women, it's the, they did a practice run last week, and it was it was great. It was really wow, good. a couple weeks in advance. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> Will any of your narrators be on hand for the opening? I believe so. I believe all of them will be there, except for one. Ex yes, except for one. So eight of the nine. Yes. There. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's great. They will be very interested in your performance. Yeah. <laughs> It'll sure. be their words, right? <laughs> exactly. Margie, it sounds like these students are doing a lot of good work. How did you coordinate all of this? You're teaching a class, I know, but how do you organize this and get this so that you actually reach the finish line and the public gets to come see the work? Um, um, well, I think it's a collaborative effort. Um, Dr. Natalie Fusakis and her... Um, team here at the center uh, have been so helpful in just doing so many different um, projects from organizing the oral history clips to keeping track of all the items the women have loaned us to, to put on display. Um, so that partnership, and then Dr. Fusakis, you know, her, this is her project, Women, Politics, and Activism Since Suffrage, so without those kind of oral histories to be the base of this story. Um, so that collaborative effort um, is really the kind of foundation. Um, and that goes across the board, working with students, working with Jael, um, and some of the other people we've had a chance to work with. So I think it's the team <laughs> that really gets this to delivery. <laughs> but how do you do a class around this project? How does that work? How did you structure it? So this, this particular class, um, it's a little different because it's the graduate seminar in public history. And um, those, the theme or topic of that graduate seminar varies, as, as you know, from semester to semester. It can be very theoretically focused or research focused. Um, so since Gile had kind of fully developed the exhibition um, before the class started, I was thinking, how do I get the students engaged with the development of, the ex of an exhibition? And then also pick up the kind of skills they may need as practitioners and as historian, public historians. So we focused on label making, label writing. That was mm -hmm. the only text we read was on label writing, how to get that to a, you know, skill. Beverly Sorrell's Beverly Sorrell. Labels, second edition. Second edition. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we spent a lot of time with that text. But, you know, I think it was an interesting, it was the first time I had done a class this way 
Um, but I think it, it, it allowed the students to sort of really explore what are the, what's the skill set one needs as a public historian. Um, as Mark just mentioned, the, the curating process, the process of curating, right? We do it all the time. We make choices in what evidence we include in our stories, what, what's the point of departure for our stories um, as historians. Uh, so I think, I think that big idea. Right, mm -hmm. Beverly Smith talks about the big idea, and so we drive that home. What is it? What's the big and idea? And that's supposed to be the, the the take home when all is said and done, and your visitors have gone through and right. had this amazing experience. What do they take away with them? What do you hope they take away? What's what's your big idea? <laughs> They're all panicking, folks. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. No. Um, I hope that. Like I mentioned earlier, I hope that they're able to go in there and um, hear and read the stories of these women and realize that it is about Latinas, but it could go across the board, and um, whether with men or women, um, but especially with women, that we have always been involved politically in the, in the community in social justice. And that whether it's one person that walks out of there feeling a little bit more empowered and that they want to go back into their community and do something, whether it's doing a food drive or whether it's um, starting, starting something in education or whatever it might be, the big idea, I think, would be to realize that this is one story one story of one woman or of many women, but that it is it is collectively across the board about any woman or any any activism, any activist. And then many of them didn't start out. Yeah, they didn't thinking that they, they were going didn't. to be. They didn't. They started out thinking that they were gonna they were going to help their community or they were uh, trying to find a solution to a personal problem, not not a problem about somebody else, but a personal problem and then it grew to something much bigger. Or they were just doing what was right. There's right. that too. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, and anyone can do that, right? right? right. Exactly. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to ask you all. This is a a really uh, political moment of ferment, I guess is a, one way of putting it. Um, great intensity is another way of putting it, uh, because there have been so many issues since the election uh, revolving around immigrant status, revolving around race, the arguments over what kind of society this really is, what is American culture, and who's in and who's out. Do you have any feelings about that as you get ready to open an exhibition that's very explicitly about Latinas who are claiming a part of uh, America's uh, political life? I think I feel hope. I mean, and, and strength. Um, a lot of, uh, a number of these women in their oral histories in this uh, surfaces in the exhibition, uh, their activism was rooted in Proposition 187, which was a California initiative that passed overwhelmingly. A lot of voters agreed that undocumented immigrants should be denied the right to education, should be denied the right to access to health services. And Antonia Hernandez says this in her interview. She says, thank you, Pete Wilson. Because after 187, 
so many legal residents then became citizens. My mom was one of them. She thought, oh, 187, I might be next. Let me move on this. And she became a citizen after 25 years of being a legal resident <laughs> in this wow. country. And so I think through their stories we hear hope because all of them had encountered discrimination. They had encountered really tough political tides that repeatedly told them, you do not belong. You, This is not your place. And, and they persisted, right? And so I think that um, I hear them and I think, well, we, we may get through this, these turbulent times as well, that they're, for every one of these women, there are probably a few dozen who are organizing on the local level or sharing a different story than what maybe the media or um, certain figures in pol politics tell us. So I, I find hope. That's a good story. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a great story. Seven was a dark time in California, yeah. and yeah. we've mm -hmm. changed. Mm -hmm. We've changed mm -hmm. as a state. Yeah. I was thinking, um, when I started working on this project, um, as you just saying, Dr. Cothra, about um, the recent election, but, you know, we're hearing these voices that are coming out from this election, and one of the, the prominent one that um, started was the, the women's movement. This, the Women's March that, mm -hmm. you know, happened earlier this year in January, and that was a huge movement. And I myself, I mean, I, I consider myself political, but I never actually went to a march until now. I went with my wife uh, and myself, and we went to the march in uh, downtown Los Angeles, and it was just unbelievable, just, you know, just the, the show of, you know, people coming out for all different types of uh, movements, but it was... It's interesting that it was that woman's movement that, that started this march. And this, it goes just well with perfect with this exhibition. Um, Good that's when, Exactly. Yeah. Um, when I started this project, um, it was about a year and a half ago. And so nothing really was brewing up. No, there was no um, political turmoil. There was nothing. Um, and so I just, it, it was started because it was something that was interesting and something that, that, can um, that talked about Latino American history here in California and Southern California. Um, as time went by and as the election came um, started passing, as the election happened actually, I then realized I, I had a moment while I was sitting down listening to all this and trying to write those labels, um, <laughs> and I realized I said, "Oh my goodness, this is so important. This is going to really." bring to the forefront why it's important that we ha that these activists are doing what they're doing. Because these activists are still right now, they are in the forefront of everything that's happening. Aida Breseños with the labor movement, Angelica Salas, she's extremely busy, I could only imagine, since she's working in immigration rights. Mm -hmm. um, so there's all these, so it's something that's very relevant right now and it's something that I hope that people um, people then re will realize that there's always been this it's not this is th we're showcasing nine women today but just imagine the long legacy and that was something that Dr. Brown did previously but just imagine that long legacy it, it's not starting now it's very long and if we could all just realize that then I think there would be a better appreciation as to the role of Latinas and Latino American history.
The exhibition is Voces de Liberación, Latinas in Politics in Southern California. It opens April 27th, closes June 21st of this year, and there's an opening reception April 26th at 5.30 at the Central Quad, Cal State Fullerton. The exhibit will be in the Pollock Library. I want to thank our guests, Jael Mueller, Mark Garcia, and... Professor Margie Brown Cornell. Thanks for joining us on Outspoken. Thank you. Thank you. Now let's hear from Natalie Navarre in Out of the Archives, featuring oral histories from women featured in the exhibition. Hello, my name is Natalie Navarre, and I'm the archivist for the Lawrence B. DeGraff Center for Home Public History. This part of Outspoken is called Out of the Archives. Every podcast we have, Out of the Archives is where I'll be highlighting certain oral histories and other findings from our collections. Throughout this segment, you will be listening to clips of oral histories of women from our most current oral history project, Women, Politics, and Activism and Suffrage, or to shorten it, the WPA Project. These clips will be presented in the upcoming exhibit, Voces de Liberación, Latinas and Politics in Southern California. This exhibition will feature the stories of Antonia Hernandez, Teresa Smith, Councilwoman Nuri Martinez, Helen Torres, America Bracho, Mayor Rose Espinosa, Angelica Salas, Ada Briseño, and Mayor Pro Tem Michelle Martinez. Overall, there are 18 oral history clips that visitors will be able to listen to when they visit the Sals Polak Atrium Gallery from April 27th to June 21st of this year. Today, I will be presenting nine of the 18 clips that will be featured in this exhibit. The first clip you will listen to comes from an oral history with Teresa Smith activist and community leader against police brutality, whose son Cesar Cruz was killed by Anaheim police in 2009. Smith was interviewed by Analia Cabral in 2015. Listen as she reflects on what it means to be an activist. I hope that whoever listens to this interview will have, will learn something from it, you know. Um, the work that an activist does is not easy. It's not easy at all. There's a lot of people, uh, even people you work with, that will fight against you. Um, Sometimes it takes away a lot of your time from your family, your personal life. Um, You don't get paid for it sometimes. I don't get paid for any of this. You know, an activist really doesn't get paid, you know, for this. They do it all in their own time. But in the end, and especially when you see some results finally come to fruition, that in itself is the greatest reward or award you could get, is to see that you've been a part of a change for the better. I do this, like I said, for my son. I do it for his sons, for my grandsons, for the future of all of our sons and daughters, because um, in activism, there is no gender, race, religion. Um, We're all one human race. The next clip you will listen to is part of an oral history with Rose Espinoza, founder of Rosie's Garage and current mayor of La Habra. She is the first Latina mayor in Orange County. Espinoza was interviewed by Kristen McGowan in 2014 and by Shirley Virgil in 2016. Listen as she reflects on breaking barriers and why she is a feminist. I think I am a woman that likes to break barriers that I want to be I want to be and do something I have never done and I um, 
was I've always been in a position where there have not been women in those positions. I remember when I started in Beckman Coulter, I started as a glass blower. There mm-hmm. weren't women in that. I started in an uh, electrical mechanical designing. There weren't women in that one as well. I love Eleanor Roosevelt. I just love her. She's an, she's one of my role models. I like to read her books and. I, the, the award that was given to me that said uh, women are like tea bags you don't know how strong they are until you put them in hot water and that is exactly what I like to see you know is, is women that they really know you really come to find out how strong they are when they, they're put in hot water mm-hmm. and, and it's just the growth that I feel mm-hmm. that women can achieve when they are like that mm-hmm. uh, and so women have pushed it, the paper have, they have pushed mm-hmm. it and I mm-hmm. like that because if it hadn't been for women like that or the women's suffrage that people that were in jail um, and, and went on strike and they were dragged or you know things like that we wouldn't see change happen for women and that's why I, I, I would say that I am a feminist uh, and I'm very proud to be at that point uh, for the results that we have seen for women to advance, mm-hmm. yes. The next narrator I will highlight is America Bracho, the executive director of Latino Health Access. Bracho was interviewed by Abby Waldrop in 2015. Listen as she discusses the significance of fighting for women's rights. I am so much committed to women's rights that think that it needs to be included in everything you do, that you don't need programs for that. That if you work on diabetes, you need to fight for women's rights. If you work on HIV, you need to fight for women's rights. If you work on housing, you need to fight for women's rights. That women's rights is in everything. It's like oxygen. So that's, that's the extent of, you know, am I a feminist? I don't know. I just think that we need, if you are working on education, you have to think in women's rights. I'm absolutely committed to this, to, to gender equity uh, in every place where, where we can see it. Uh, however, there is a discourse that is more theoretical or that has, that has, ¿qué palabra estoy buscando? Where to be feminist sometimes is when you say you are feminist, it might be misconstrued as a person that has a competition with men. And I don't fight against men. I fight for women's rights. I don't need to take away your rights to fight for mine. I don't have to say, you know, if I don't have it, you don't have it. I'm glad you have it. Why? We're going to fight to have it. The next snippet comes from an oral history with Ada Briseño, Secretary-Treasurer of Unite Here Local 11, Vice President of Unite Here an International Union, and founder of Orange County Communities Organized for Responsible Development. Briseño was interviewed by Jael Muller in 2015. Listen as she talks about her focus on building a collective workers' movement. I started learning at some point, you know, my job was to teach them and was to make them stand up. And and it happened at a very similar time when the USC fight in Los Angeles was going on, where there were hunger strikes with the hotel workers. Because back then we were Local 681 when I first started working here. And Local 11 
back in, in, you know, in you Los know Angeles with Maria Elena Durazo, I remember going to, to, to that hunger strike. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, why are my room attendants in Orange County, you know, it, why are workers in Orange County making so much less money? Mm-hmm. You know, um, why are they mistreated? You know, because I was hearing all this great stuff that was going on over there. And then, you know, and then I sort of got the idea that, you know, we needed, you know, we needed a movement of workers, that it wasn't the five or six union leaders that were going to, you know, be the heroes for a whole working class in Orange County, but that we really had to build leaders from the ground up in order to effect change in the county, right? To bring more justice into the workers. The next clip you will listen to is part of an oral history with Angelica Salas, executive director of the Coalition for Humane Immigrant Rights of Los Angeles, also known as SHERLA. Salas was interviewed by Jael Muller in 2014. Listen as she discusses what it means to organize. So at SHERLA, um, one of our core functions is to organize our community, uh, workers, etc. And um, so what does it mean to organize? It means to bring people together. Um, to do joint analysis about their conditions and then to develop joint plans as to how things are going to change um, as a collective. And that means um, bringing them together. So we have uh, uh, committees in different parts of the state um, that join, come together on a monthly basis, on a weekly basis if necessary, um, to um, think about together what are we going to do to change conditions in our community, in the state, and in this country. Um, that is why we passed driver's license in the state, because there was groups of people organized towards that. Um, so we have different um, committees in um, the San Fernando Valley, in Los Angeles, Antelope Valley, in um, the Central Valley. US, um, with students, we formed committees in high schools, or so in 15 high schools in the city of Los Angeles, and in 67 campuses across the state of California. Um, in fact, there's one at Fullerton. The next narrator I will highlight is Antonia Hernandez, attorney and executive director of the California Community Fund. Hernandez was interviewed by Jayo Muller in 2016. Listen as she reflects on how being a woman in her line of work makes a difference. We're less quick to, you know, sort of make judgment. Um, and I think that that's really important in the future where, we, where collaboration is so important, where partnership, where teamwork is so important, um, and the value of life. You know, as women, we have the capacity to give life. And once you give life, you know how precious it is. And so thinking about the those issues of life and death, and uh, I think we think about it a little different. So I think being a woman and being a Chicana Latina woman has broadened my lenses, given me different ways of looking at the world that enables me to, to add value to the other ways that people think. The next snippet comes from an oral history with Nuri Martinez, the only woman on the LA City Council. Martinez was interviewed by Dr. Natalie Fasekis in 2016. Listen as she explains what needs to be done to get more women in elected office. I think also, um, the mentoring part is very important. It's like, how do you mentor other women to want to do this? Mm-hmm. Um, why does it take uh, an average of seven times before a woman accepts or is convinced to run for office? That's the statistic. Emily's list points it out. Clo- uh, Close the Gap points it out to me all the time that it takes about seven times for a woman to be convinced 
that she can run for office and should run for office. Well, that shouldn't be the case. Women, the majority of people who work in this building are women. The majority of people who run campaigns for a lot of the gentlemen, the volunteer base, the volunteers are usually women. We're raising the money and we're running their campaigns. And then once we get them elected, the chiefs of staffs and the people running the actual offices are women too. <laughs> so women are all over politics. They just don't feel that running for office is probably in their cards. And we need to change that. We need to create a pipeline for ourselves. For example, uh, cultivate, when you, when you are the woman elected, cultivate the women who are going to uh, take your place or perhaps see other openings anywhere else where you can have women ready to go. The next clip you will listen to comes from an oral history of Helen Torres, executive director of Hispanias Organized for Political Equality, also known as HOPE. Torres was interviewed by Jael Muller in 2015. Listen as she explains why it's important to have Latina voices in politics. I hope and I believe that there's a, uh, a larger space for all of us, um, for our different thoughts um, and the way we see the world. Um, what I hope that I'm seeing, I think, you know, I'd love to test that this is true and collect the data. There's, you know, Latinas traditionally have been activists in the background, right? Organizing the rally, putting together the flyers, you know, doing, you know, putting together all the food that you need for the big day, you know, and really kind of working in the background and then setting up the stage and then the man comes up and he takes the mic and all the glory mm -hmm. goes to him. Yeah. I don't see that happening as much. You know, okay. I see it being much more shared mm -hmm. um, between males and females. I see more Latinas taking the mic. I think my boys, they really wouldn't know what it looks like to have a man, except for on the news or when they see President Obama speak at the mic, they would always think, assume that a Latina is there, right? Because mm -hmm. their whole orientation is seeing other, you know, going to hope events where Latinas are in the forefront, right? Mm -hmm. So I see that. I see that role of activism changing quite a bit, where... You know, there have always been strong Latina leaders that have been in the forefront. I think there's a lot more now. The final clip I will present to you comes from an oral history of Michelle Martinez, mayor pro tem of Santa Ana and currently the only woman on that council. Martinez was interviewed by Abby Waldrop in 2015. Listen as she discusses her feelings on women being at the decision-making table. And people will say, well, why do you get so involved? And that's the reason, because we need to be there. When you sit at the SCAG and you, don't, you have 86 members, and out of that 86 members, only 20 are women, 25 maybe. Or when you sit at the Metropolitan Water District, a 43, 45 member, and only 12 of us are women. You sit at the California League of Cities Board of Directors, 45, 50 members, only eight of us are women. Um, that right there says it all for me is that, you know, you're there's still it's still a good old boys network in politics. And until we as women say we have to be there, um, it's not going to change. The only way it's going to change and the only way we're going to earn respect is that we continue consistently are at the table. I hope you all enjoyed these clips. Before I end the segment, I want to remind everyone again about the upcoming exhibition, Voces de Liberación, Latinas in Politics in Southern California. COF will be hosting an opening reception for the exhibit on Wednesday, April 26. If you are interested in attending, please RSVP to COF at Fullerton.edu. And of course, if anyone is interested in any of these oral histories I presented in today's podcast, you can come on by to COF and either I or one of my coworkers will help you. 
Along with the WPA Oral History Project, we have around 300 oral history projects that contain almost 6,000 oral histories. Go to our website at cough.fullerton.edu to research more. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. I hope to see you soon, and thank you for listening to Out of the Archives. Thank you for listening to Outspoken, the podcast of the Lawrence B. DeGroff Center for Oral and Public History at California State University, Fullerton. This is Benjamin Cothra. Our episodes are produced and edited by Carrie Rael. You may find all Outspoken episodes on our website, coph.fullerton.edu, where you can also learn more about the narrators featured on this episode. And we invite you to stop by, visit us at the Center for Oral and Public History, located at Pollock Library South, room 363 at Cal State Fullerton. Email us at coph at fullerton.edu, tweet us at coph underscore csuf, or find us on Facebook. Thank you for listening. Until next time, this is Outspoken.